You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. We find ourselves at the beginning again. We are at the close of an old church year and at the start of a new one as the season of Advent unfolds once more. Today we circle back around in that sacred spiral of time that is the church liturgical calendar, circling back once more again to the beginning to another first Sunday of the season of Advent. Now is the time of preparation and waiting again. But everywhere we look, I'm afraid, the focus has shifted from Thanksgiving all the way to Christmas, hasn't it? Festive Christmas decorations are already lining the streets, my street included, and my Halloween pumpkins still stare at me accusingly from my front patio. And the sales are here, aren't they? My email inbox is filled with warnings about Black Friday sales that I'm missing, or reminders to shop on Small Business Saturday, or telling me not to wait for Cyber Monday. The rush is on, isn't it? You can feel it. Christmas is upon us, and it's not even December yet. Our calendars begin to fill up with concerts and parties and special events and get-togethers, and it's good. All those things are good. But it's easy to get swept along with it until suddenly it seems the month of December has almost disappeared and Christmas is upon us. And the expectations that come with the holidays, they often bear down on us too, don't they? How many times will we hear that Christmas carol reminding us with the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But what if we're not feeling it? What if good cheer is just a little hard to muster? After all, there's so much to despair of in our world. The ongoing terrors that we see in Israel and Palestine. There's another year of war in Ukraine with no end to the suffering in sight. News of far-right extremists gaining popularity around the world. And we know that 2023 is on track to be the hottest year on record be of good cheer, you say? Many of us come to this time of year with weariness. 
And not just from all the cooking that happened last week, but with a tiredness deep in our bones, don't we? Asking how do we rejoice when the world is too much with us? We hear the cries of the weary in our excerpts from the psalm for the day, Psalm 80. It's a communal psalm of lament, perhaps written during the exile, written at a time when dreams have been shattered. Many have lost their homes. They're living in a foreign land surrounded with different customs and values and stories. And the people are just tired. The psalmist says that they've been fed with the bread of tears. What an evocative phrase. They've been forced to drink triple measure of tears. The psalmist follows up. It's grief in everything. They are scorned upon, they're mocked, they feel abandoned by their God, and they are waiting, desperately clinging on to hope, calling out for God to just see them, to hear their cries. And in the psalm of lament, there is a refrain of the people that's repeated again and again. Restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be saved. The image on your bulletins and on our lecterns today was inspired by this psalm. And if you pick up a copy of our devotional booklet this week, you will find uh, the artist's reflection on this piece. Lyle Garrity began to work on this image when the news of that day was of another mass shooting. This time at a church preschool in Tennessee. And the grief and the helplessness and the weariness just seemed so heavy to her on that day. And she created this face within the colors of the cosmos, weeping. Weeping tears of grief for creation, an image of God as a holy parent weeping alongside all of the parents grieving for their children that day. Restore us, O oh God. Let your face shine that we might be saved. Rescue us, please. From our suffering, our grief, our tears, let your face shine upon us again. You can feel the desperation, can't you? It reminds me of that dramatic scene from the classic Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. You know, George Bailey, that big-hearted director of The Little Savings and Loan, finds himself in financial and legal trouble because of his bumbling Uncle Billy. And George Bailey can't see a way out of the mess that he's in. And so he's standing there alone on a cold wintry night on a bridge, shivering as he looks out at the icy water, all hopes lost, wishing that he'd never been born. Patricia DeYoung once wrote, Hope is what is left when your worst fears have been realized and you are no longer optimistic about your future. 
Perhaps that's why we're drawn to stories and poetry at Christmas time, when the world seems so bleak, when no solution magically appears for us. Just mere words or platitudes of hope sound hollow, don't they? But stories, stories have a way of getting past our defenses, of opening up moments for us in a way that mere words seldom can. Stories can take us to that very point in which all seems lost and we're on that bridge with George Bailey feeling all the pain and the burdens of worry and in the midst of despair, somehow hope opens a way to come through. Now, maybe we've never had an angel, second class, hoping for his wings fall into our lives. But if we're lucky... We have had those moments of rescue, haven't we? Perhaps when the bonds of friendship have come through in a time of need or when the kindness of a neighbor has lifted us up. Angels unaware. When much like George Bailey eventually discovers, we are amazed to find that the burdens of the world are not ours to shoulder alone. But miraculously, somehow a strong web of friendship and compassion can bring salvation to us. Our gospel reading pulls us into another familiar story. But before it introduces the characters for the day, it begins in the political, with the big picture The writer of Luke intentionally sets out the markers of the political powers of the day, writing in verse 5, There was in the days of Herod, king of the Jews, a certain priest named Zechariah. It was the time of Herod, Luke reminds us. For ages and stories are defined by the power brokers, aren't they? Those whose names are engraved on buildings and those whose names we find in history textbooks. It was in 40 BCE when the Roman Senate awarded Herod the title King of the Jews. And not long after that, Herod's forces with the backing of Mark Antony took Jerusalem by force aligning the region with the powers of Rome. And then in 37 BCE, Herod ruled over all of Palestine, from the very northern part with Galilee down through Samaria all the way to Judea in the south until his death in 4 BCE. And during his reign, he did what men with power and resources do. They build things. He attempted to define his life in monuments and edifices. He oversaw multiple large-scale building projects, including a massive remodeling work on the temple in Jerusalem. And in his day, he made his mark in his little corner of the world. And it's in that world in which Herod gets all the headlines with all its political claims and power struggles. That's where our story begins. But what's really important is not what happens to Herod. But we focus in instead on an old couple, 
on Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. He's a low-level priest no one's ever heard of, and she's a descendant of the daughters of Aaron. And Luke goes out of his way to let us know that they were good people. Good people. Luke writes, both of them are righteous before God. They live blamelessly. They're good folk. And yet life has not played out how they had hoped. They're a childless couple, both well beyond the days of pregnancy and childbirth, and that has been a source of grief and longing. For they live in a culture which prized offspring, both as a source of security in old age and also as a reflection of God's blessing. And we can understand that the two of them carry that pain with them. Now, we know this story, right? We've heard this before. It's echoed in the stories of Sarah and Abraham long before the birth of Isaac. And then there was Manoah and his wife who would become the parents of Samson. They, too, had no children. And then there was Elkanah and Hannah who would become the the parents of the prophet Samuel. And then there's the unnamed Shunammite woman and her husband who the prophet Elisha blesses with a child in their old age. So Luke is telling us a story steeped in the stories of Hebrew scripture. And we know that God is about to break into their lives and turn everything upside down. So one day we find Zechariah is faithfully attending to his duties in the temple and it's his turn to enter into the sanctuary of the Lord to offer incense. It's a religious ritual he knows well. But this day is different because suddenly he comes face to face with a messenger from God, the angel Gabriel, who startles the old man with the news, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. (laughs) Zechariah, though, weighed down by years of longing and a closet full of unanswered prayers, responds not with joy, but with follow-up questions. How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years, he says. And I love that. I love that. The questions, the disbelief just come tumbling out. Zachariah pushes back with the stark realities of life as he knows it. The days of children, they are far behind us, you mysterious stranger. Why should I embrace hope now? And Gabriel's response seems rather prickly, doesn't it? In the TV adaptation of Good Omens, the novel by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, the angel Gabriel is played wonderfully by John Hamm, the same John Hamm who plays the iconic Don Draper in Mad Men. So imagine Gabriel is Don Draper. But I imagine the angel at this point stands a little straighter, puts his shoulders back, chin up, and says just a little defensively, 
I am Gabriel, right? I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And then Gabriel goes on to say, but now because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Why does he do that? It's often understood as a punishment for Zachariah's disbelief, right? And perhaps it is. Maybe Gabriel's a little bit miffed at the lukewarm reception to his announcement of good news. He gets better at bringing good news as Luke goes on. But what if instead of punishment, we consider that Zechariah's inability to speak might turn out to be another gift to him after all. An opportunity for the man to step away from his role as priest to stop trying to explain everything to someone else. But now, here he is, given a chance to sit with all of those churning emotions inside of him, all that jumble of weighty stuff that he doesn't quite understand. Zachariah is forced by his imposed silence to not be the person with all the answers. Instead, to simply be in his situation. After all, when the holy barges in to our lives, upsetting everything we thought we knew for certain, perhaps being dumbstruck is an appropriate response. In the solitude of that holy place, Zachariah experiences the sacred in a way he never had before. And his life is forever changed after that moment. He is, as the writer Eric Weiner puts it, jolted out of old ways of seeing the world. So eventually, Zechariah makes his way out of the sanctuary of the Lord and back to the people. And they would have been there waiting expecting a word of blessing from the old priest, a reassuring benediction to send them on their way, and it doesn't come. And they quickly understand that the old man had seen a vision during his time in the sanctuary, and you have to wonder what's going on with them. Is there a sense of anticipation in the crowd, or is it a little bit of unease? This would not have been the religious experience they would have expected when they made their way to the temple that day. So you have to wonder what they would have made of that odd ending to their worship. Zechariah finishes his priestly assignment at the temple, makes his way back home to Elizabeth. How did he tell her the news? Perhaps with a writing tablet and a shaky hand. And then how did she respond? Did she laugh like Sarah? Or did they shed tears together? Maybe they shed tears of laughter together. Luke doesn't give us a glimpse into that moment at all. We're left to wonder. As we stand here on the threshold to Advent, I want to invite us in these first days of the season to pause, 
Stop and take a reality check. What are we carrying with us as we begin Advent this year? Perhaps you're weary, holding on for dear life. So take the time to acknowledge those burdens that are weighing on you. Don't push them down. It does nobody any good to be forced to be cheerful. In our Advent devotionals, you'll find prompts for creating your own journal toward joy this season. And one of those prompts is to write down all that makes you weary right now. Get them all out on a page or two pages. And there's a bit of release when we do that. As you experience writing down, naming those things that make you weary. I invite you to sit with that list for a bit. And listen for how the holy may be speaking to you from what you have named for yourself. And then if you feel like it, when you're ready, just rip that up into little tiny bits. as an act of release, but also as a tangible offering of your prayers to God for this season of Advent. It's a way to say, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Rescue us. The author Ross Gay in his book, Inciting Joy, writes, my hunch is that joy emerges from our common sorrow. Which does not necessarily mean that we have the same sorrows, but that we in common sorrow. And that that common sorrow might draw us together. Your list of weary things may not be on my list of weary things. But we all have lists of sorrows, don't we? Things which weigh us down. How does a weary world rejoice may sound a bit like a dreary theme for Advent. I know. But as I've been preparing for it, I've been amazed by the depth of sorrow that I find in so many beloved Christmas carols and hymns. One of my favorites is it came upon a midnight clear. One verse goes like this. And ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow, look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Oh, rest beside the weary road. And hear the angels sing. Let us find rest together in these weeks of Advent beside the weary road as we make our way to Bethlehem one more time. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. 
To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.